But in terms of tips and tricks for <laughs> holding on to your memory as we suffer the inevitable age-related memory decline, or advice that I even give my healthy college students, I can give you two big tips. They're the best things you can do for your memory. That was Dr. Jessica Payne speaking about what we can do to improve our memories, which is one of the things we'll discuss on this episode, episode number 53 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looking Forward. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that affects every one of us, our brains. More specifically, we're going to look at memory and our brains. In part one of this two-part series, we'll look at what we've learned in recent years about the brain and its capacity to remember things, what purposes memory serves, some things you can do to improve your memory, and other things too. To help us explore this hugely important subject, we've brought on a highly qualified expert. She's Dr. Jessica Payne. Dr. Jessica Payne is Professor of Psychology and the Andrew J. McKenna Family Collegiate Chair at the University of Notre Dame, where she directs the Sleep, Stress, and Memory Lab. Her research focuses on how sleep and stress independently and interactively influence learning, memory, emotion, and creativity. She teaches various courses in psychology and neuroscience, including a popular course entitled The Sleeping Brain, for which she won Harvard University's Bach Center Award for Teaching Excellence and Notre Dame's Frank O'Malley Award for Undergraduate Teaching and Service. Dr. Payne is also dedicated to applying her research findings to business organizations, striving to help leaders understand how to work with, rather than against, the natural abilities of the human brain. Her work has been profiled in the New York Times, Business Week and MSN, Scientific American, The Huffington Post, CNN, USA Today, Bloomberg Business Week, National Geographic, and many other media outlets. Dr. Payne's postdoctoral fellowship was split between Harvard Medical School's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard University's Psychology Department. She holds a PhD in Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience from the University of Arizona. Well, hi, Jess. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to answer some questions for you today. Well, I can tell you that you can't possibly be more excited than I am, Jess. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> this know. is a topic <clears throat> I'm so interested in, and I'm sure that the listeners will feel the same way about it. And I'm sure from the demand that you're seeing for what you have to say in your research, you're seeing it too. I'd like to Absolutely. start off, Jess, by asking you, among other things, we know that you're an expert on our memories and how they're affected by sleep and stress. Can you please tell our listeners how, when, and why you became involved in studying those things? You could have studied a million things. Why did you get involved with this? 
Yeah, you're right. And it is a, it's an interesting story. It's a little meandery, but the, the where this started is I, my parents were both clinical psychologists mm. who were very deeply embroiled in the false memory controversy. And I don't know if you remember this, it was back in the eighties and nineties and had a lot to do with this idea of children recovering memories of abuse and therapy and whether those memories were false or true or some hybrid. And I got extremely interested in the nature of memory because my parents, my mom in particular, was involved in a huge sexual abuse case uh, in the state of Nevada, which is where I mostly grew up, and was being attacked from all directions um, and, you know, for implanting memories in these children, which she absolutely didn't do. In fact, she had just gone through a workshop on how not to ask leading questions of kids. Um, so it became a big controversy within the field of clinical psychology. And once I got to grad school, I realized it was a controversy in memory science as well. And so I got very interested in that about, you know, how fallible are our memories really? And, you know, is it possible to actually have a memory that's been repressed that gets recovered later? So stress, obviously, if somebody's been attacked or raped or abused or has gone through any traumatic experience is a huge factor. And so that's really how I got started studying memory was through this interest in false memory that got expanded into understanding how does stress impact our ability to form memories and retain them in an accurate manner. And then, <laughs> and then the second part's really funny. My best friend uh, in grad school, this was at the University of Arizona, was taking a class on sleep and cognition. She actually worked in a sleep lab there. And just to spend more time hanging out with her, and because I thought it sounded interesting, I took this class in, in sleep and cognition and just got enchanted by it and started thinking about the obvious intersectionality between sleep and stress, which I'm sure everybody listening knows about, right? I mean, usually if you have an attack of insomnia or you're having a hard time sleeping, that is often due to stress. You've had a stressful experience at work or you've gone through a loss. I mean, insomnia or sleep problems are a really common consequence to stressful events. And then learned that sleep deprivation, you know, the loss of sleep is itself incredibly stressful and, you know, results in the release of very high levels of stress hormones like cortisol. And it's easy to get in, into what I call a sleep stress snowball, where the more stressed you are, the less you're sleeping, but the less you're sleeping, the more stressed your body is, which then makes it harder to sleep. And all of this impacts memory and cognition and around and around and around you go. And I've also had a long-term interest in, in dreaming. And as part of that class, I got interested in the relationship between uh, cortisol and our dreams, because you may not know this, but when you go to sleep at night, you are cycling through very different stages of sleep that look nothing like each other, neurobiologically, chemically, hormonally. And it turns out that the distribution of sleep is lopsided. So in the beginning of the night, you get most of your rich, deep, slow wave sleep. But toward the end, including around the time you wake up, you're getting the majority of your rapid eye movement sleep, which is actually a tremendously active brain state. And at the same time, the diurnal rhythm of cortisol, it just so happens is very, very low in the beginning of the night, but very high late in the night toward morning when you're going into this rapid eye movement rich sleep. So I started to wonder 
if some of the strange memory phenomena I witnessed under high levels of stress and cortisol may start to help us understand the nature of our dreams, which are also very fragmented, bizarre, you know, sometimes creative. They certainly don't look like you're processing regular normal memories from the day. If anything, it looks like you're taking pieces and fragments of things you've learned and things you've experienced and weaving them together into crazy narratives that can also sometimes be quite innovative. So what's funny is I was, I was all set to go do a postdoc in uh, stress and cognition research. And instead I published a paper, this theoretical paper on dreaming, caught the notice of my wonderful advisor at, at Harvard, Bob Stickgold, and decided to go work with him. And it just changed the direction of my uh, career completely. Uh, so now I look at stress and sleep sort of in combination in order to understand many different cognitive phenomena. That is fascinating. A few different players who have influenced you to land where you are, starting with your parents, then your friend in college, and then the, the good professor there at Harvard. A couple of comments I wanted to make. One is I have type 2 non-insulin dependent diabetes. Ah. And one of the challenges that people like myself have is related to cortisol. Yes. Because when you wake up in the morning, the cortisol, of course, has tried to awaken you. That's right. And, and then that will cause a rise in your blood sugar, which for a normal person is no problem. The pancreas releases insulin. It kicks the sugar into your cells. My pancreas is what I call a lazy pancreas. It likes to sleep, <laughs> okay. likes to sleep a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I know all about that cortisol <laughs> thing, but I didn't know about it for a long time, that, that effect, which is also, I think, sometimes referred to as the dawn phenomenon. That's right. Yes. And the other thing is about our memories and you threw in dreams. Boy, this is all great stuff, Jess. But I know that many times I will have the chance to either go back and look at something I wrote or experience a place that I've been to. And I find that my recollections were wrong. Mm -hmm. Like I was remembering it was like this or that I did that. No, I didn't. And it isn't even triggered by stress. It's just my memory, the way that I processed it. And I must have either it evolved in my brain or, or I just didn't process it correctly because I don't retrieve it as accurately as it really happened. Yeah. And that's not just true for you. That's true for everyone. And, you know, I think you were going to ask me about, you know, sort of new trends in memory research and new discoveries. That's actually one of the best insights I can leave your listeners with is that I think we all tend to think about memories as being veridical, as being accurate snapshots of our experience. And I think that's because of the way we teach kids in school. I mean, they really do have to remember like the correct answer, but you have to think about memory in terms of how it must have evolved and why it must have evolved. And I'm quite convinced and I'm not alone amongst memory scientists that memory Yes, it's, it's, it's obviously about recollecting the past, but it's much more about using what you've learned flexibly to predict the future, hmm. right? So you need, to, you need to actually, if memories were, were locked in in some rigid format and you could only ever apply them to the situation in which they were learned, they would be almost useless. You, you actually need memories to be 
flexible in order to use them to try to figure out an ever-changing, you know, present, not to mention the future. So that flexibility is so important, but the price we pay for that is inaccuracy. And so I'm on the record, actually, when I want to be contentious at conference say, saying <laughs> there is no such thing as an accurate memory. You know, all memories are false. Um, wow. Not, not necessarily flagrantly false, but right. they're all a little bit false. Um, because if you think about it, you know, you've got preconceived notions and schemas that already exist in your head and expectations for what you think are going to happen, even when you perceive and encode the original event. So whether you even get it in there uh, accurately is debatable, but then certainly when you do what I study, which is consolidate that information, yes, it gets committed to long-term memory storage, but it doesn't just get stuck there. It actually is transformed by the very nature of going through that process. So, you know, I think that is one of the cool changes or trends we've seen in how our brain works to, to store and retrieve memories is that it just doesn't work like a recorder, you know, uh, or a device that's actually going to record what really happened. It's, it's much, much more selective than that. And it's powerfully flexible, but because of that, it's also fallible. And also, you know, I don't know if this would be of interest to you, but I, I have to say like the diabetes thing is interesting. I not surprised I didn't catch it because you're clearly quite thin. So I, I know, you know, most diabetes type two diabetes is, you know, definitely highly correlated with, the obesity epidemic. So I'm not surprised they didn't catch it. But you, what you're talking about is called the cortisol awakening response. Interesting. And that's normal because you know what cortisol is? It's a glucocorticoid. Its job is to mobilize glucose. And that's actually, by mobilizing it, that's actually what helps you sort of get up in the morning. I mean, I do consider waking up in the morning a stressful event. <laughs> um, but that flood of cortisol that most of us have, that cortisol awakening response, which is actually where cortisol peaks throughout the entire 24 hour period is very important for getting you up and getting you going. So it must be a little difficult for you if you've got a flattened one because you've got this lazy pancreas. <laughs> you started to talk about this with this latest development in terms of our understanding of our brains and our memories, Jess. If you could do a little bit more of that, that is give our listeners some sort of a snapshot view of what changes or trends have occurred in our understanding of how the brain works to store and retrieve memories over the past two decades, what we have learned. I'm talking now before COVID. I know it will mm -hmm. overlap a little bit with COVID, but we'll get into COVID more specifically in a little bit. Right. Yeah. And on that, I mean, so that for me is one of the most insightful things about memory is just really trying to understand it differently than the way we always have, which is, well, the goal of memory is to learn and record events so that you can retrieve that information later. And uh, certainly that's useful, but it's mostly useful in the classroom settings that we're in when we even think about learning in memory. And yes, I mean, if you can imagine being old and in your 80s and being able to sit in the rocking chair next to your buddy or your spouse and, you know, sort of reminisce about things that happened, that's nice too. But when you think about the brain and you know the pressures on it during our deep evolutionary history and the function that must have been you know important in terms of its evolutionary adaptation back when we were in the savanna or whatever, it would really have been yes, remembering where to get food sources, remembering where to avoid hostile tribes. That's part of it, but it really does seem to serve a predictive quality as well. And one of the reasons we know that is because amnesics 
who have what's called bilateral damage to their medial temporal lobes. The hippocampus is a part of the medial temporal lobe. Uh, like most regions in your brain, you have two of them, a hippocampus on each side. And if you damage that bilaterally, you will literally never be able to learn anything new mm. from an explicit standpoint. I mean, these are the patients that are actually very rare. There's a famous one you may know of called HM. They did this surgery I, I, long ago in order to stop the spread of seizures. This is you know, due to intractable epilepsy. But no surgeon has ever done that surgery again because it rendered him so profoundly amnesic that he would still be introducing himself to his doctor 20 years later. Wow. Couldn't recognize the person, right? So the hippocampus is incredibly important for your ability to initially acquire new memories. But then after that, you know, other brain regions get involved to process and to store and to transform this information. And that's where they get... I don't want to say false, but that's where they actually become more flexible. And I think mm. what's meaningful about them at that point is their ability to, you know, attach uh, or synthesize themselves with other previous experiences or knowledge that's similar so that you can do things like generalize so that you can produce insights going forward so that you can anticipate new events. And so what's interesting about these amnesic patients who have damage to the hippocampus on both sides of the brain is not only can they not remember the, the past, but they can't predict the future. Mm. And so if you ask them, what do you think you'll be doing a year from now or five years from now, they can't tell you. Wow. So it, 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 the same damage that influences memory in terms of our ability to retrieve information has the same impact on our ability to think about the future. Wow. And so that was more evidence that this memory system is, you know, equally, if not more important for the future than it is for the past. So that's, Let's, you know, one of my favorite advances. Let me stop you for a second. So this is new stuff. I mean, this is only like in the last couple of decades that we've learned this sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because we, nobody thought to ask an amnesic patient to think about the future. You know, it wasn't until we got modern day neuroimaging technology where you can have somebody lie in an fMRI scanner and do just about any cognitive task. And so now we know exactly what the brain network looks like when somebody is there trying to retrieve a memory, right? You get a lot of that hippocampal involvement, you get by involvement in the parietal lobe, parts of the frontal lobe, you get, you know, it's a brain-wide system. And because we've been using this technology for a couple decades now, we know what that memory retrieval system looks like. Right. Like if I were to tell you, lay in the scanner and think about getting your driver's license or when you got married, if you did that sort of thing. And and so now we know that if you ask somebody to lay in that scanner and instead think about the future, like what do you what do you think you'll be doing in five years or what do you have to do today after you get out of this <laughs> fMRI scanner, the, the network that they activate, it's pretty close to being identical. And so those are the things that have been pretty recent discoveries uh, that I think made people start to think, ah, so maybe memory is about using what we know to navigate this complex world, a complex social world, a complex world where you never know what's going to happen next, just as much as it is about recollecting the past, which then led people to start looking at amnesic's ability to do things like predict the future. So memory may be even more about the future than the past is definitely something that has happened in the last couple of decades. I mean, it's certainly nothing I learned when I was even in grad school. Mm. And that and maybe other learnings about the brain and memory have been triggered by the fMRI, right? Without question. 
And that just came about in the last 20 years or so? Uh, yeah, 20, maybe 30. I, you know, I think it became, I mean, it's extremely expensive because usually you're using machines that are at hospitals and doctors can charge a lot to insurance to use them. So we're always trying to sort of use them when they're, you know, when they're not being used by clinicians or, you know, some places like Harvard um, have their own, you know, for research purposes only scanners. And so it's become more and more utilized where you're using technology to image the brain in real time when somebody's performing a cognitive task, like remembering an event, like speaking a second language, you know, like solving a problem. So it's the first time that we've been able to peer into the brain while a healthy person is doing that. Because prior to that, there was really no way to do it. We couldn't see what systems and what brain regions would become activated when people were performing these tasks. Uh, we had to rely on, I don't want to say inferior methods, but different methods. And you know, I mean, you can do something as cool and as clever as plant depth electrodes in the human brain. So now you're getting into individual neuronal responses, right? Neurons are the cells that make up our brains. And you can actually put quite a few of them in there. But you can't do that to a healthy person. You know, so the only reason you'd ever do that is if you're a neurologist, you know, or a neurosurgeon who's trying to figure out the loci of seizures. But it's true. Once you've got them in there, you know, some real scientists will come in and, and do some do some experiments. But then you're doing it on you know, what's a disordered brain. And so fMRI has really allowed us to look, to peer in, to look inside the healthy human brain while it's at work performing different cognitive tasks. Okay. One other uh, follow-up question to that, which we'll probably get into in a little bit more deeply. And that is over the last couple of decades or so, Jess, have we learned more about what helps people <laughs> remember better or why some people remember things better than other people do? I mean, absolutely. So I think we've learned more from these rare people who have what we call hyperamnesia, hypernesia, which is the ability to remember things exceptionally well. They're also really rare. This is just a natural variation. You know, you can think about a lot of human variables are normally distributed. So if you think of the, the normal or the bell curve, they'd be way out on the tail end. I mean, they're so, so rare that when you get a chance to study them, it's very interesting to do that. And so we've learned quite a bit from, from those people because they tend to structure their memory very interestingly around dates. So you, the, the cue, the memory retrieval cue is often a date. So you could say, tell me what happened on September 23rd, 1982. And they'll be able to do that. Wow. You know, but this is very, very rare. It's not normal. I mean, it's normal in the sense that it's the normal or the bell curve, but it's just so statistically rare. You don't find those individuals very often. And I think the other part of your question was not so much about the differences, but about what we can do to make our memories better. So there's no way you can make yourself one of those people. That's just, you know, genetic variability that leads to really interesting memory systems. But in terms of tips and tricks for <laughs> holding on to your memory as we suffer the inevitable age-related memory decline, or advice that I even give my healthy college students, I can give you two big tips. Yes. They're the best things you can do for your memory. And one is repetition and the second is sleep. Yes. And you know, it. I can't tell you how crazy it drives me as a college professor walking across campus when I'm listening to students bragging about doing the opposite, right? So not only have they crammed for an exam rather than revisiting the material over and again through repetition, they crammed it all in at once, that's the opposite. But they've done this across a night of sleep deprivation because they're cramming for the test overnight because they've got to take it in the morning. 
And, you know, I think it has something to do with the way people just love to wear their sleep deprivation as a badge of honor. You know, yes. it's this first one in, last one out mentality. You know, on the college campus, I think it, it's this boastful, well, I worked harder than you, I'm more committed than you. And of course, I'm trying to disabuse everybody of this notion because while that may help you do well on the test, it, you won't remember the information later. So what I tell my students is if it's truly a class that, you know, that you don't care about and you don't think you'll ever use again, fine, do that. But if this is a class that you're going to need to remember or would make, say, med school or law school or business school or whatever you're going to do easier later on, then don't do it that way because your brain isn't going to remember it long term. It's going to be a short term phenomenon. So the best thing to do is to make sure that you revisit material multiple times, right? So that you don't just study all at once, or this is even true. I mean, you know, this it's true for physical skill activities as well. Like, you know, learning a new dance routine or a new piano play piece, you have to practice multiple times. And when that happens, the brain really does sort of interleave that knowledge into long-term storage networks in a much, much, much more long-lasting and robust way. And so what I tell my students is at least study a few times, you know, revisit your notes a few times, um, make sure you, of course, understand the concepts, but then don't just look at it once. Even if you have a good memory, make sure you look at it several times. And then ideally, you'll sleep on it. So the trick is to that last time you study the material or the last time you think about a problem you want to solve even, you'll do it right before you go to bed because it's sort of telling the sleeping brain what to consolidate or what to work on. And that is exactly what the brain will do. So, so now not only are you getting the benefit of sleep, which we know is one of the most important things for consolidating memories and consolidating memories simply means making them stronger, making them last longer. And sleep does seem to be the gold standard champion brain state for consolidating our memories. Uh, actually, restful wakefulness can do a pretty good job too. But both of those things, sort of allowing your brain to go offline once you've been online studying something, that sort of going online to study, offline to process and consolidate, online to learn, offline to process and let it consolidate is very important. And that's what leads to that interleaving that leads to really, really long lasting memories. And then if you sleep well, you're going to get the benefit of the consolidation. But if you review those notes for the test you've got coming up just one last time before you go to bed, that's even better because it's going to tell the brain what to be working on. Wow. So and that's good advice for anybody who, you know, wants to remember people's names or has, you know, is trying to learn something new. Those are the two most powerful things you can do from a memory perspective. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm driven so badly by, it's not just our college culture, it's corporate culture. It's oh, every it's culture. Corporate. I was going to say, yeah. it's not college, not just college at all. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I do so many um, leadership trainings and professional speaking gigs is because I'm trying to get people to understand that if they want to enhance their performance, these are the ways to do it. Everything we think we know is just based on cultural myth. It doesn't work from a neuroscience perspective. And we've known that for a hundred years. Oh, and by the way, if you're encouraging your employees to get better sleep, <laughs> you know, and stay healthier, you lead to happier employees and you tend to retain them better. So yes, this neuroscience of leadership is something I've become really passionate about because most people in corporate environments, even in medical environments, frankly, 
they don't understand how to leverage the strengths of the brain. They're too busy beating it up, (laughs) you know, and just denigrating and disparaging it and thinking like, no, sleep is for sissies. And, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. How many times have you heard that? I'll tell you what my response is to that. I say, yes, and you'll be be dead a lot sooner and you'll be a lot (laughs) stupider in the meantime. (laughs) That's telling it like it is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to that. Because that okay. this whole thing about how do we remember better is really important to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people. We have about 20% of our listeners who don't live in the United States. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, Jess, if you could say a little bit about how much of what you've spoken about already in terms of the newer learnings, the trends, our understanding of the brains and memory has paralleled what's been learned elsewhere, maybe it even came from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What do you know about that? Uh, it's absolutely a worldwide effort to try to understand the way the brain works and the way memory works, 100%. I mean, so yes, a lot of the research is done in the United States, but frankly, when it comes to my field of memory and especially how s- stress and sleep impact that, uh, we automatically have to go to places like Europe, especially Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Canada, absolutely. I mean, some of the some of the original insights back in the 50s about amnesia and the importance of the hippocampus came from Canada. So key contributions really are being made just all over the world, uh, all over Europe, certainly, but you know, Japan, China, absolutely, Brazil, Argentina, and others. It's it's what I love about being a neuroscientist and what I love about studying these fundamental questions like how do our memories work and what is memory really for? You know, is it just for remembering or does it also lend that flexibility to our thinking that allows for higher level types of human cognition like creativity and insight and innovation? These are just collaborative exercises and the best research, frankly, is in my opinion, done when you get different labs involved who come at this from slightly different theoretical perspectives and you have multiple sites working on it, ideally across different countries, because that kind of diversity, just like diversity we know always does, helps people come up with you know, more creative insights and better ideas about how things might work. And that's one of my favorite things is about being a, a scientist is that I get to, you know, between my professional speaking for corporations and my academic speaking, I get to travel all over the place. And that's part of why is I need to go out, you know, to Germany a lot, frankly, in order to work with people in the Netherlands also to work with people on these questions. So it's a worldwide endeavor for sure. That's so wonderful to hear because we're always hearing about this global conflict or that global conflict, how people can't get together on this or that or the other, even within the United States. Yeah. But to hear different countries globally cooperating on something very positive is just terrific. It's very uplifting to hear. It is. It is. And that's one of the reasons I think science is one way and not a small way, one very powerful way to bring people together because you get people from diverse backgrounds working on the same problem. And all of a sudden you realize that your similarities are much, much, much greater and more important than your differences. Yes. Um, COVID is another great example of that. I mean, the world kind of came together to, to work on COVID, to get to that vaccine in record time. And science is like that. So I always do see it as a force for good in that way, bringing people together. Wonderful. I would add music is another one. Absolutely. 
getting back to what you were talking about before with how our memories function, I have been spending more time than usual lately at a senior living community, people who are principally over 65 years of age. And the common refrain is, well, you know, I'm not going to remember your name. You can tell me your name. I won't remember it unless you have a name tag. Or if somebody forgets something, they say, well, you know, look, I'm older. (laughs) You know, that's the way it is. I'm wondering, is that something that we should be expecting Is it something that we should be concerned about? Because we all know Alzheimer's and dementia, they're real things. My mother, may she rest in peace, had vascular dementia. How common is this where we're not remembering these things? Were we really always like that? Or we're just now thinking it's because we're getting older? Mm -hmm. And when should we really worry about our memories? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I can tell you that this is one of those areas where a lot of research dollars are pouring into this. You know, sometimes I get frustrated because as you might imagine, studying sleep doesn't doesn't generate the same amount of interest. Yeah, like, right, what are you going to do? Why are you studying that? The, the, you know, nothing's happening. No, that nothing could be further from the truth. The brain is highly intensively active during sleep and it's doing so many things for cognitive fitness and your your ability to remember. But when it comes to dementia, especially Alzheimer's, when it comes to age-related memory decline, at least it's comforting to know that I do feel like we are, or the government is, and other agencies are pouring quite a bit of research dollars into that. Um, Because as we're living longer, we're just going to have more cases of Alzheimer's and other dementia. It's just the way that goes. But to answer your question, you know, it, it is actually Uh, common with age, we all are going to experience what we researchers call normal age-related memory decline at some point, if you live long enough, okay? And again, there's a lot of variation in this. My across-the-street neighbor, he just passed on, I think he was 97, 96 or 97. And I'm telling you, he would remember conversations we'd had, details of the conversations we'd had months after they'd transpired. I mean, I remember the first time he drove up to me and he told me at that point he was 92. I was like, you're lying. I made him show me his driver's license and he was living alone. So there, again, these things are normally distributed. You know, may we all get so lucky, right? Yes. He was as sharp as a tack. I mean, I'm, and I mean, literally, I'm a memory researcher who was telling you he was sharp as a tack yes. right up until he died. Okay. Wow. So that can and does happen. We know genetics are involved in that. You know, I, it's not as if he had the healthiest lifestyle. Right. Which is frustrating. You know, some people can get away with a lot of uh, oh, yeah. you know, abuse to their systems <laughs> and the genetic, you know, and his, all of his siblings also lived very, to a very old ages and had intact memory. So that can happen. But again, it's an outlier. So what's, what's much more normal is that our memories start to decline. And, and I actually believe that starts in middle age. In fact, I have a grant right now from the National Science Foundation to try to understand the relationship between sleep, stress, and memory changes in middle age, because we don't study it. Virtually all we know about memory, this is true for almost any type of cognition, is from college students, because they're a captive sample, you know, that you can do your research on. They get extra credit, you know, but they tend to be healthy, and they're obviously young, and people have gotten much better at studying little kids, and then the truly aged, but nobody knows really what happens in middle age and Mm. what's normal in middle age and what habits for better and worse that people may engage in in middle age that may stave off that age-related memory decline for longer than perhaps normal or what are they doing that makes it worse. So I think middle age is a really interesting time to study 
And to get back to something you said, you know, it's hard to know what's really age-related memory decline in the middle age years because those also happen to be the years where, I mean, you know this, you're juggling your career, kids, you know, probably a spouse or partner, maybe aging parents. You are so bombarded with responsibilities that it really may be more of an attention thing where your, your attention's just fractured. And we know that if too many things are bombarding your attention, it's very hard to have good memory because there's just too much impinging sort of on your conscious experience. And, you know, I think I mentioned you have a three-year-old. It's impossible to focus. So what's so funny about this, you're saying you've been hanging out with older people. I myself have started to really worry about why in the world I can't remember certain people's names more easily. But I'm hoping that that's more because I'm just so busy and I'm so distracted and my attention is so splintered than it is about any type of real memory decline. But I, you know, I, there is evidence that memory does start to change in the middle age years. You know, it probably peaks just like so many things do in your twenties and then it's downhill from there on average. But what's so interesting is that there are two ways of doing the science. Okay. And so if you take a group of young people and give them a bunch of memory tasks and you compare them to a group of much older people and you have them do the same tasks, the young people are always going to outperform the old people. Well, with the exception, actually, of if you change the task so that it's less about memories, just straight up memory retrieval per se, and more about problem solving or integrating things, having insights, because the older people have more experience, they tend to be much more discursive, you know, in their purview. And so for one thing, I show in a lot of the talks I give that older adults are absolutely better at solving certain creativity tasks than younger students. This concludes part one of our two-part series on the brain and memory with Dr. Jessica Payne. In part two, we'll take a look at what are the telltale signs of memory issues we should be concerned about, how COVID is affecting our brains and memories, what advances we might see in our understanding of our brains and memory in the future, and what opportunities they might offer to those in the know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.